I'm Martin Reeves, chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and we're listening to the Insights Podcast. I'm joined today by Judy Samuelson, who is founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program, and also a vice president of the Aspen Institute. She's previously worked in uh, banking and at the uh, Ford Foundation, and she's just come out with a very interesting new book, a very timely new book called Six New Rules of Business. So welcome, Judy, and thanks for discussing the book with me today. Thank you, Martin. So you propose six rules to replace a mindset of what you might call TSR primacy, broader view of business. Is there anything about the timing of the book? Why does business need these new rules now, do you think? Well, I think we need business now. You know, I think that business is simply the most capacious institution of our day. And we're not going to address our most complex problems, whether it's inequality or climate change, without business wholly at the table. And, of course, we need business consciousness and a social contract, real consciousness of the impact of business decisions. So it's timely both for business leaders who want to be a part of this and who are eager to kind of take hold of this moment and think about the role of the corporation and, and what's possible from within. Some people might say that trusting business to look after non-business issues is mm. destined to be self-limiting. Isn't setting the, the social rules, the, the constraints of business, the job of government? Honestly, it's a little hard for me to consider an issue of consequence that ultimately doesn't rebound to business. You know, as somebody says, I cannot have a successful business in a failed society. And I think in this moment, many, most are concerned with the health of our democracy. Certainly, there's a overwhelming concern about the pace of change and climate change and the need to really do a reset here. And of course, inequality continues to grow. We are besieged as a nation with a national conversation about race. I mean, all of these things were bound to the business sector. Business is the creator of economic worth and of jobs and economic opportunity. We need to engage business and the kind of question of who decides or what constitutes a business issue, I think, is in the eye of the beholder, perhaps. But if you if you go out long, you can see where these lines start to converge and where the interests of society and the interests of business can actually be aligned. So I'm hearing a strand of it's in the self-interest of business to adopt these new rules that we're going to discuss in a minute, and, and also a strand of politics and government is not in a position to address you know, the most pressing issues of society. Is your primary motive one of those things or, or both of those things? We go back to the kind of origins of our country, of the United States. We've always engaged in this kind of complex dance between business and private investment. I mean, our infrastructure is largely private or built through private initiative and rewarded by government contracts, et cetera. You know, it's always been present and it can be complicated, but I don't know that that part of this puzzle has changed all that much. We have faith in this country in private initiative. We hold executives in high regard, kind of bounces back and forth right now about who we, we think is most necessary in a, during a global pandemic. I mean, obviously, government has come back strong in many respects. But no, I don't think this is a new conversation. I think this is an old dance and one that we're still trying to figure out. Indeed, it is a an old-ish dance, isn't it, at least, uh, in that business itself has been 
discussing CSR, CR, purpose, sustainability, materiality for some time now. Do I take it from, from your book that all of that is not enough? And if so, what's the shape of the missing element, do you think? Well, it's not enough if, you know, CR, corporate responsibility, sustainability, if that's a kind of an adjunct, you know, if it's an initiative that lands somewhere down the hall but doesn't quite connect precisely to the business model. What we really need is to capture the real capacity that resides in designing a business with the idea in mind that it's serving a public purpose. I think Larry Fink is one of the ones who's articulated this well through his annual letters. I mean, obviously, business needs to be serving, you know, exists to provide goods and services and a a consciousness today that is needed to rebalance our sense of private inurement versus the public good. And so I think in this moment, what's different is that business leaders are being called again to the table to say, what does that look like? When we put the health of the commons at the center, what does that look like? Business leaders play various roles. So that's a very interesting answer. You're saying essentially it's an extension of CR and and, and sustainability and so on, but it's at the center of business, the design of business, the conduct of business, rather than being an adjunct to business. Would, Would that be fair? Absolutely. You know, we also live in an age of understanding that the ecosystem is one that both business both influences and that is is part of business design today. You know, these people that work on so-called circular economy and design businesses with a sense of real kind of proportionate understanding of how business is both dependent on natural resources and can be a source of innovation to replenish and and rebuild systems that are at risk. That's true in the social sector. It's also true in the environmental sector. So I think it's an interesting time where new kinds of ideas and and measures and ways of being are at the fore. But I do believe that these rules are not brand new, that there's just greater consciousness now to the importance of getting this balance right. So let's go through the rules. You, You have six of them. The first one says that basically intangibles like trust, reputation, drive value and not only cash flows and assets. What what has changed to to make that the case in recent years? Well, I think that the measure of values of firms is so much today. It's something like 85 or 80% of the value of companies is really attributed to things that are very hard to measure. You mentioned trust. Yes, the, you know, reputation and responsibility. The ability to attract and retain talent. People talk about this as a critically important part, in a, particularly in a knowledge economy. And so if those things are what from which the company derives value, it's no longer a bricks and mortar world where we measure the value of firms based on kind of hard assets. That has been the case for decades now, and it only grows in importance. It's, it's clear in the stock market. So it's a new awareness, I believe, and one that's going to require us to think differently about how we train and develop measures of valuation. That's sort of inconvenient, isn't it, Judy, in the sense that the merit of a very financial view of business, a traditional view of business, is that you can actually measure objectively. Everybody can agree upon what cash flows were in the last quarter. But the intangibles you're saying drive 85% of the value of business are more subjective, uh, more open to interpretation. Do you think that we need to do a lot more work on on, on measurement or is it you know, is it already good enough for purpose? I'd say yes, yes and no. 
I think too much of our measurement system today, we talk about ESG metrics and all of this sort of thing. I think it's too static. It's designed to create simple, simplistic comparisons between firms for the convenience of investors. And I don't really think that that's of great use to the managers. Our concern, we think the real agency exists within firms. And I don't know any manager worth his or her salt who thinks in single objective functions. The successful ones are obviously balancing all kinds of different inputs and timeframes and considerations and you know, so-called stakeholders and other agents. So, you know, this is nothing new about this. It's been, you know, the single objective function is a simple thing to teach in a finance classroom, but I actually don't think it governs a boardroom. So that brings us nicely onto rule two, which says that the corporation has a purpose and objectives beyond TSR maximization, or, or it should. What is the cost of not accepting that? Because there are still some corporations around that are, you know, very financially driven very centered on a, a single objective function. What, what, is the, what is the cost of that view? To some extent, the biggest cost today might be felt in your ability to motivate your employees. There's much been made of millennials, but I think that um, in this age of social media, it's more obvious that the next generation is looking for a greater sense of coherence between what they care about you know, on the weekends and go home, the kind of larger world they inhabit and their responsibilities within the business. But this is a moment where we talk a lot about purpose. Of course, the real work is in making sure purpose is revealed. It's revealed by the decisions business makes, not just by its proclamations. And the real work is to make sure that we're aligning our operations with those intentions. And that's the real challenge. So, Judy, your rule three says that corporate responsibility is not defined only by fence line neighbors like competitors and customers, but by a broader set of what others are called stakeholders. How do you manage and make trade-offs and prioritize and identify that broader set of stakeholders? Well, I think you've used the right word. It's about priorities and clarity about why you exist, you know, what the purpose is. And in, in the best of, both, of all worlds, it's that purpose is it's obvious how it connects to the commons, to the public good. But I don't really like the term stakeholders. I find that, you know, my eyes glaze over and I assume, you know, it's like, well, what are we talking about here? And it always sounds to me like we must be talking about somebody who, you know, has a keen interest, but it's not clear why they're really essential to the harmony of the business itself. And I believe that it starts with purpose. And in the process of clarifying purpose, but also thinking long-term about the health of the enterprise itself, it should be real clear what the priorities are and who else is needed, who we need to listen to, where the decisions land, and, and how we take into account how someone else, how, this, how our operations look from another perspective. And that's obviously clear that that needs to happen through the supply chain, through the license to operate that's granted by states and by countries that allow us to operate there, but also, of course, employees. But as we try to prioritize these things, every company is different, every industry is different, and what's absolutely critical to the long-term health of the enterprise needs to be clear. And I don't think it's one big mushy, you know, pool of stakeholders. I think uh, it's like all business decisions. It's multifaceted, but it's made with long-term health of the enterprise in mind. Then uh, rule four, you, you talk about labor. You say that labor has mm -hmm. been, in recent times, a cost to be minimized, but 
it's actually not a cost to be minimized, but a precious risk barometer. Uh, could you explain your thinking on that one? Well, I think we're starting, this is one of the things that we're starting to see much more clearly. And in some respects, during the kind of time of COVID, the human aspect of business, I mean, companies have become more, you know, almost humanized through all of the stories of frontline workers and the risks that people have taken to be able to continue to deliver goods and services to customers. So employees are, they are the business. They're not just another stakeholder. I mean, Leo Strine, the recent Chief Justice of the Supreme Court actually talks about, when he talks about ESG, he says it really should be EESG. We need employees, environment, you know, other social elements and, and governance. And there's some truth in that. Employees are like their own category. I think that employees are critically important, and I think they're fundamental allies. No one is more fully aligned with the health of the enterprise and the employees. Essentially, they want the same thing. They want the company to flourish over time with the hope that they will be well compensated for their efforts. They want security of employment. They want to feel good about what they're, what they're coming to work to do every day. And employees sit inside and outside. They naturally can identify critical risks. They're close to the ground in that respect. They're the customer interface. They're managing through the supply chain. They see things up close and personal. And they also see opportunities. So for both of these things, that yin and yang of risk and opportunities, employees are absolutely critical. Very much connected to that, or an extension of that is rule five, where you say that a lot of management and leadership philosophy has been based on the assumption that capital is the scarcest resource. But you're saying capital is no longer the scarcest resource, but rather it's culture and talent. So a two-part question on that one, given your former finance background, is the the surplus of capital a, a temporary or a, you think a, a permanent state of affairs? And what are the consequences for a corporation if you shift the main focus from uh, capital and managing scarce capital effectively to managing labor and talent? First of all, let's take up the first question. It's absolutely not a temporary situation. We, we all know that the number of companies uh, that are going public has declined and that there are fewer public companies. But we also have the recent examples of companies like Spotify and Snapchat when they went public. They actually didn't go public to really raise capital in the public markets. They did it to provide an exit for their early investors and venture capitalists and the like. And the, the public markets exist the same way public markets has always existed for, essentially as a trading among those who hold shares of stock, um, a vehicle potentially to continue to raise capital, but companies get their money at their IPO. And so the fundamental question is, in the age of technology, where capital is a less important resource, I mean, it's capital light. It's not a, you know, we're not a heavy industrial society that is relying on continuous flow of capital to continue to build out manufacturing facilities and the like. It's a, you know, a more virtual world and and one that is not as dependent on financial capital. And how does all of that change the art of management, do you think? Because it, it is true management has been dominated by finance, which is actually essentially is an issue in using capital effectively. So mm-hmm. if we just shift the focus, what will change in the art of management, do you think? Well, I think it is a sense of where, what, on which, what do we depend to truly stay creative and close to our customer and look where the opportunity exists. And, you know, companies that have strong cultures and that have been companies like Southwest Airlines, you know, that Herb Kelleher 
put the employees right at the center of the purpose of the enterprise, smartly so, given that the airline industry, which of course is horribly troubled now for many reasons that are out of their control, but you know, employees are the customer service. They are the user experience. And so it's not surprising that companies that with robust and healthy cultures are better places to work. People are have more of a sense of why they're there, what is their job, and what does it look like to really excel, and there's good feedback systems, and a healthy conversation about what's important for the long-term health of the company. And finally, you have rule six, which is quite uh, disruptive for me personally, because I was brought upon the, the paradigm of sustainable competitive advantage. But you say that the competitive paradigm must be replaced by a paradigm of co-creation. Could you Explain the idea there to us, please. This is particularly true, is germane in the sense of when the system itself is at risk, the answers don't come from an individual firm. They come from executives stepping back and saying, what's the root cause of the decline or the risk? And bringing together all of the parties, but only those parties that are most critical to fixing the problem. And so We see this in complex but important engagements where an NGO will take the lead and work with a key part of the supply chain and use them to open the door to other competitors who need to establish a set of protocols that will protect the commons first in order for the companies that are involved in that market to continue to survive. Clearly, we have lots of examples of that in the world of fisheries. But I think increasingly that is the attitude that will be brought to bear in the world of climate change as well. Your rules seem to be mainly about, perhaps with the exception of Rule 6, mainly about what individual companies should do and how they should think about business. But I guess the biggest challenges of our time are indeed problems of collective action. If we think about plastics and climate change and inequality, do do your rules address implicitly this collective action problem? the need to operate at the level of groups of stakeholders and companies as opposed to just getting the the company level decisions right? This is probably oversimplistic, but I think that there are three roles that the executive plays. Clearly, the one that I have thought the most about and I think is, is most salient, but in some respects still needs a lot of consideration, is where the executive has real agency. What are the choices that they actually make as an enterprise? Almost doing an audit, you know, from the vantage point of the board of the executive, doing an audit to say, where do we really have influence? Where do we have things that we could do differently that would address whatever the problem is that is at stake? Whether it's addressing, you know, structural racism, which business is now talking about in a wholesome way, or climate change or, you know, any other complex multidimensional problem like that. But business executives are also being called, particularly by their employees, to leadership. And that means often speaking outside the company and identifying and raising a voice when there's a a systemic problem. And of course, we've been seeing that in spades in this moment of chaos, really, at the end of the Trump administration and the transition to a new presidency. So we're seeing the kind of coalition building that the Business Roundtable has participated in and other coalitions, of course, have been structured through lots of different entities that bring business people together to kind of say, 
how do we lean into this together? And where there, where is there work that needs to be done that is a a common problem that we all share where if we, we kind of collaborate together, we may be able to see a different kind of breakthrough. And finally, there's a role of actually in policymaking. And I think that one's going to be a complex road forward. Business is always engaged in policy, but it's principally been around things that are clearly in the interest of all companies, lower taxes, less regulation. Will we see a new generation of thinking come out of the business sector where there is a kind of real shoulder to the wheel? We've started to see this around climate with the business roundtable finally taking a stance on pricing carbon in the last year. Will we see real shoulder to the wheel in business aligning policy decision making with the health of the commons? In terms of bringing about this application of the six rules, I guess that's a fairly massive change problem. And part of that change process is mental, new attitudes. You point out, I think, in the the final or the penultimate chapter that we need to start educating managers differently. You point to the need for a different business school curriculum. What would a better curriculum stress that today's curricula don't stress, do you think? I think the biggest problem, frankly, is in finance classrooms. We started working in business schools 20 five years ago. I started looking at business education and trying to figure out where the disconnect was. You know, we see lots of examples of individual executives motivated by different things from family legacy to kind of a swift kick in the rear by an NGO that had harnessed their brand somehow. But we've seen as a result of lots of work by organizations like our own over many years, a change in the curriculum, new centers designed, new ways in which The kind of outside has been brought back inside, not just in the ethics classroom, but through other parts of the curriculum as well. I think the biggest place we're stuck is finance classrooms. I think principally they're still teaching to a very limited purpose, idea of corporate purpose. Shareholder value maximization is still the kind of mainstay of business schools. If you you test what students enter thinking and what they exit thinking, they enter thinking like consumers and they exit thinking like profit maximizers. Students are entering business schools today with broad goals in mind. They want to use business to address the problems that they think are most important. And that's maybe always been the case, but it's certainly the case now. And that's going to require finance classrooms that have single objective function and are still, you know, discount cash flows from the future, you know, discount, want to discount those things that can't even be measured or discounted perhaps. And so that's going to take some rethinking and some real creativity, and it may take a generational change, but I think that's the place that's holding us back the most. And then lastly, the external part of the change, change management. If a CEO had read your book and was thinking that I need to embed these six rules in the way that I think about and operate my business, where would they begin that change program? Where would they start? What would the Monday morning agenda look like? Well, I'll tell you where Lee Scott started. Um, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, when he had that wonderful moment where there was that photo on the front page of virtually every paper in the country showing a long line of uh, Walmart trucks pinned down on I-10 waiting for the National Guard to reopen the, the streets of New Orleans so they could go in and deliver water and you know baby formula and diapers and blankets to the people who were stranded in New Orleans. He said, wait a minute, how do I get more of that kind of press? Walmart had been battling 
environmental challenges and, and labor coalitions for over a decade, and they were being constrained in their own growth. And he saw this as an incredible moment. And what he did first is he went on a listening tour. He listened deeply to his own employees and held lots of conversations, listened to people on the outside, and began to put together a remarkable plan that first started with some extraordinary goals in the environmental front. These are today not, you know, th these are commonly known and it's a story that we know and he wanted to harness their own supply chain in order to leverage the remarkable capacity that Walmart represents. So I don't think this is a new idea, but um, employees have things to say. And if we don't listen to them, we're starting to find that um, maybe there's unintended consequences as well. So I'd go inside first. Thank you for spending time with us explaining your new book, The Six New Rules of Business, which will be published on January the 12th by Barrett Kohler Publishers. Uh, I think you've done a masterful job of summarizing a lot of change and operationalizing it as a set of business imperatives as opposed to what you called adjuncts. Uh, so congratulations on the new book and thank you again. Thank you very much. I love doing it. <laughs>